This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. What can I say? Robert Schiller is a legend, professor at Yale, Nobel laureate, author of 10 books, one of the people who helped drive behavioral economics to its position of influence today. His new book, Narrative Economics, tells a fascinating story of how stories drive markets and economies and why some stories go viral and others don't. It's quite fascinating. I could babble for all this time about how fascinating it was to chat with him, but rather than me do that, let me just say with no further ado, my conversation with Professor Robert Schiller. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Robert Schiller. He is a professor of economics at Yale University. He won the Nobel Prize for his empirical analysis of asset prices in 2013. He is perhaps best known for the cyclically adjusted P.E. ratio, the Case-Shiller Housing Index, all sorts of works in behavioral economics, as well as the author of numerous books, most recently, Narrative Economics, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. Bob Schiller, welcome to Bloomberg. Very, it's a pleasure. So it's funny that you of all people wrote this book. When, when I think of narratives in the context of behavioral economics, I tend to think of the stories that investors tell themselves to either rationalize buying a company or not selling something that didn't work out. And you seem to have taken this to a different direction. Your thesis is narratives has a very big impact on markets and the economy. Is, is that different from your prior work or is yeah. this consistent? I wrote a book in 2000 called Irrational Exuberance which focused on, well, I didn't use the word narrative a lot, but it was the effect of narratives on the stock market. Mm-hmm. And I've decided it, it's bigger than that. It, it extends to the whole economy. And uh, a lot of people know about the importance of narratives, but economists mostly don't. So it's, it's trying to bring uh, the study of narratives into economics, because I think it, it matters for the big events that we, we see. And in the book, you describe how other fields use narratives pretty robustly as a way of either explaining what happened or why something happened. Why why has uh, economics been so uh, behind yeah. the times with this? Well, I don't exactly know why it is so different. It has something to do with a, a esprit de corps and a department of economics and finance that is uh, built around this maximizing framework that, that people... We don't describe their behavior, we describe their objectives and assume that they're maximizing their expected success with these objectives. And there's a reason for that in economics, that uh, often people know something that that, that is guiding their actions, and we better figure out what that is. So I think uh, that is an interesting direction that economics has taken, and uh, it leads us to things like the optimality of market solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's become, it, it's great, but it's also become something of a religion. Uh, and it has blocked uh, people seeing the obvious. So homo economists, people being profit maximizers, I assume you're not really a big believer that that is the dominant 
narrative all the time. It's not the dominant narrative all the time. And the human mind is very capricious, mm-hmm. and it jumps from narrative to narrative. And it's socially determined. It's not just narratives I tell myself. It's important that I tell them to others, and they can spread virally. So that leads to the question about social media. How important is the modern era of fill-in-the-blank, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, to economic and market stories going viral? Well, it changes the, the scenario. But we did have stories going viral thousands of years ago through word of mouth, Mm -hmm. the same way viruses go viral, from person to person with no intermediary. That's how you catch a disease, usually. Mm -hmm. You you meet someone and uh, it spreads from one person to another. So it's capable of producing big epidemics. Now it might speed them up. It also allows more polarity. It allows people to find similarly oriented people. And so you might see more diversity in views that come about because of uh, so I think we have to study the uh, effect of social media and other uh, internet programs. But fundamentally, narratives have been important in driving the economy going back millennia. All right, so let's talk about some big events, and I want to get your feedback as to how uh, various memes impacted them. There seem to have been a, a number of narratives around the Great Recession and the credit crisis, the one that I remember distinctly Home prices never go down. Mm-hmm. Turned out not to be the case. How important were narrative economics to the buildup to the crisis as well as the subsequent collapse? I think home prices, that was a major cause of the crisis. Now, we might have still had a recession, but it wouldn't have been so bad without that. I want to know, what the, I'm interested in the big events. And often it's contributing factors that make them big. So the idea uh, that homes are a great investment It wasn't so much that people were saying, home prices never go down. It's that they didn't pay any attention to the thought that they might go down. Mm -hmm. I remember I was on stage in in an event uh, around 2005, 2006, and I asked uh, a businessman who was on the panel with me, what if home prices go down in front of an audience? And he seemed perplexed. What are you talking about? (laughs) It's not like he, he, he was just saying that they never go down. But he said they have, they've never gone down, not since the Great Depression. And I said, well, what if that happens again? And he, he was kind of making me look crazy. He couldn't even conceive of the idea that prices might fall. Well, when you haven't seen them fall substantially since the Great Depression, maybe that's forgivable. <laughs> Did, didn't we see a decrease in prices <laughs> late late 80s after the 87 crash right, and rates did. had gone up. So it's not like it's two generations ago. It was 30 years ago. If yeah. you're a 50-something-year-old business person, that should yeah. be in your... But it's not in the narrative. It's, it's not, not being narrative. talked about. We mm-hmm. can forget things. Like, for example, the stock market crash of 1987. Mm-hmm. That's a little over 30 years ago. But uh, my students don't know anything about never heard of it. What about the dot-com crash or the 0809 collapse? It's got to be f- a little fresher. Well, no, yeah. Well, the dot-com crash was in the future, in the event I'm describing. Uh-huh. But uh, people know about things that are, that are popular, and the 1929 crash is the one that everyone remembers. Other ones, m- more recently, how about the 1946 crash? Uh, or... Post-World War II. Yeah. Uh, well, it was like one day there was a 6% drop. 
Mm-hmm. Nobody remembers. I mean, maybe you remember. I it. don't remember that. That's before my time. <laughs> so let's talk about another big event. Let, let's talk about the gold standard. The U.S. for a long time was on the gold standard. Then we, we're off. President Trump has talked about going back to the gold standard. Yeah. This seems to rise and fall over time. What, what drives that? Well, I think that what drives narratives is a certain creativity that some people have at some moments in their lives to invent a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something that literature departments study. Economists don't. What is, what is it about a story that works? Uh, you know, often uh, our, I think our attention to ideas is focused by the kind of stories that accompany them. Um, so I thought, for example, it, 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 there's something about visual impact, imagery, mm-hmm. something about uh, human interest, something about uh, emotions being driven up, uh, something about tie-ins to other stories that you already liked. Uh, that the creative art of a writer uh, can sometimes uh, surmount and and use uh, and create a narrative that will really go viral. It's a difficult thing to do. It's, it's similar with music. Some music goes viral and some doesn't. I think it's it's somewhat random. Something gets started and it becomes develops certain associations, and then everyone is talking about it. Has to be right time, right place, and just a little bit of luck. Uh, and maybe requires perfection. So uh, perfection. The, most, the most famous this is in the arts. It's not exactly it is sort of near the ballet, the Nutcracker. Uh huh. That's the most famous ballet in the entire world. It's it's everywhere. But when Tchaikovsky first wrote it in 1892, it wasn't a big success. He had to work at it, uh, and then um, it came over to the U.S. and George Ballantine. The op- the ballet writer, a ballet director, uh, fixed it, made it into a, a really beautiful ballet, <laughs> and so it it is now gone viral. And it, it's it, we love this ballet. People who don't like ballet will go to that one, and repeatedly. So so there was something about it that that Tchaikovsky had an idea. He couldn't quite get it at first. And it it, it it involved little details that make it somehow work eventually. That, Bring, bringing the children, you have to emphasize the children. And people love to see children blossoming on stage in front of them. So because it's a Christmas-themed And it also event, ties into something right? else. And there's an annual prompt to do it, to right. see it again. So a lot of people go every Christmas. Mm-hmm. Now, this isn't really an economic narrative. I'm being a little bit different, but it's the same idea. That there, that there, and what's so special about that story or any other story? Something clicked, in, uh, and, and it's just universal. So, uh, by the way, I, have you seen The Nutcracker? I recommend you go see it if you haven't. The, um, the story you're telling about how that went viral reminds me a little bit of... Uh, Derek Thompson writes for The Atlantic and wrote a book, How Hits Happen, and he talks about a number of paintings, uh, including all the Impressionists. It's really a a sort of fascinating coincidence how a certain group of Impressionists became worldwide famous because one of them were collecting other Impressionist work, left it in their estate to the French um, one of the French museums, and part of the will uh. was it had to be displayed. So suddenly, just a group of 
a new style of art that wasn't popular anywhere else, and a group of seven or eight artists right. became worldwide famous. Same sort of thing, very serendipitous, very random. This reminds me of a book that influenced me a lot uh, years ago. It's called The Painted Word by mm-hmm. Thomas Wolfe. It's, mm-hmm. it's a similar theme. He claims that a lot of modern art is not, uh, the, the quality of it isn't recognizable just by looking at it. You have to read the reviewers, the critics. Right. And uh, they will tell, weave it into a story. Then when you go back and look at it, you'll love this painting. The story. you wouldn't have known. Quite interesting. Let's talk a little bit about the world of economics and some of the things that either do or don't go viral. In the book, you write about the Laffer Curve, which I've always thought of as having an element of truth that there has to be some optimal tax rate that maximizes revenues. But the way it seems to have been applied is, uh, let's just call it contraindicated. It was a disaster in Kansas. Yeah. It, it had terrible effects. So so why did the Laffer Curve go viral, and why are people so willing to overlook some of the downsides of it? Well, I have only a partial understanding why it went viral. I compare it with uh, Rubik's Cube, which went viral at the same time. Right, in the book well, during Reagan's term, yeah. right? And so why did Rubik's Cube go viral? It's just a puzzle, right? I mean, it was it, it, The right story was told about it, uh-huh. uh, and that it was thought to be um, somehow deep and important. Scientific- An obscure mathematician had created this... Uh, <laughs> yeah, a Hungarian this- engineer. Right. And uh, that's a narrative. Yep. Uh, just those two words, Hungarian engineer. <laughs> At the time when we were still had Eastern Bloc countries behind the Iron Curtain. Right, so it, it, all these things, uh, it, may, it may not work again today. Mm-hmm. Hung, Hungary has a different uh, story about it now. But, I mean, the Laffer Curve also, there's a little story associated with it, and it's the story of uh, Art Laffer, an economist, at uh, dinner at the uh, Two Continents restaurant in Washington, fancy restaurant, and he drew on a napkin a diagram illustrating his theory. Uh, everyone remembers this napkin. right. I wonder. That's just an irrelevant detail, <laughs> but 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 somehow it presents the theory as something that ought to be obvious. It's also this sort of virgin birth that he whips out a pen and starts doodling and says, "Here's where we optimize tax revenues." That makes what otherwise would be a fairly dry thesis very compelling and very visual. Yeah, it, it's almost like a joke. I mean, it has a punchline. That, that diagram is the punchline because it says that there's always two tax rates to reach any revenue, and one of them dominates the other. and it, It's kind of something you can explain fairly quickly, uh, and it's punji. Yeah, it, it definitely is. So that kind of raises a question in general about narratives and the economy. Which, which came first? Specifically, are stories driving the economy, or is the state of the economy driving the narratives people use to explain it? Well, I'm not an extremist on the answer to that. Economists are an extremist. Economists right. say it goes only one way, from the economy to the story. So we can just forget. We don't care about the story. That's just trivia. You look at causation a little differently. I think it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it also interacts with another kind of feedback, uh, which is uh, the multiple rounds of expenditure. Uh, if you, Meaning? If, if the government spends money... That becomes somebody's income, and mm-hmm. that person spends some of that, 
and it becomes someone else's income. Uh, this economists have loved this ever since uh, John Maynard Keynes in the 1930s. But that, that isn't the only kind of uh, feedback that's occurring. The other kind of feedback is verbal from person to person, spreading mm-hmm. a story. And I think these two feedbacks interact. This is something for further research someday. But I mean, qualitatively, I can say what's happening. The, the great recession that we just went through 10 years ago was partly the result of the standard Keynesian multiplier, but it was also just people telling stories. It, re- it resurrected the story of the Great Depression. And you can see that in Google Trends or other, uh, other ways of... Or, uh, I do it in various kinds of searches. There was a huge impact of the Great Depression, the 1929 stock market crash, that suddenly became vivid, like this is happening again. Huh, that's interesting, because during the, let's call it, 02 to 07, early 08 period, it seemed that a lot of the stories were, hey, you can make a ton of money just buying (laughs) houses and flipping it, and people's uh, greed monster got stirred up. Hey, my neighbor's making all this money buying and selling houses. I can also. How much of that is also narrative um, virally going from one person to the next? Actually, the term flipping houses... Uh, began to appear near the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was often used b- pejoratively. It was uh, cra- that this is getting crazy, right? And, and that attitude were... started to appear around 2005, a couple years or three years before the recession really hit. Do you recall when some of the shows started showing up on HGTV and those channels? Flip this house, right? And, and uh, it was a run of, of buy a house, fix it yeah. up, sell it television shows. I think the first one was Property Ladder in the UK, mm-hmm. and then that was a, such a successful show. It 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 displayed flippers. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it called them flippers, but it displayed people who bought a house, fixed it up a little bit, used their interior decorating instincts, and then made a lot of money fast. Uh-huh. That was a powerful narrative uh, because, first of all, it feeds your ego. A lot of people uh, are decorating their own home and they think they're pretty good at it right even donald trump thinks he's pretty good at decorating hotels um so that's what uh that's a source of ego gratification and justifiably some of these people are talented so but that doesn't mean that it's their talent that's creating the profits it's the housing bubble that's creating the profits and people find it difficult to think logically and rationally about did I have this success because I'm smart, or was it just chance? Just just a little bit of luck. Let, let's discuss fake news. In the book, you wrote, quote, The brain over time forgets that it once deemed stories unreliable. Explain what that means. Uh, yeah, the way the brain... You, you remember stories that you heard in the past as a story, and you don't always have well tied to that story in the linkages in your brain, what is the source of this story? And is it a reliable source? Uh, so the, the, the source connection is somewhat weak. Uh, you have to remember how, where you heard the story if you're, if you're going to be telling the truth all the time. And we try to do that, but I, th- I think there's a human defect. So you just don't remember where you heard a story. But you're in casual conversation with somebody. What difference does it make? You know, I might be telling a story that's not right. But it's a good story, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying this in bad faith. I'm not trying to 
deceive anyone. Nobody really knows what the actual truth is. So all kinds of untruthful stories spread virally. And it isn't anyone's ill will that, that accomplishes that. You, you also explain in the book that, quote, truth is not enough to stop false narratives. So that raises two questions. First is, why not? And second, if truth doesn't stop a false narrative, what does? Well, it does often stop false narratives. So I don't, it's not all together. But uh, the problem with uh, theories uh, or f- narratives that counter a false narrative is that they might not be contagious. It's just not fun. Not as compelling. See, we, we, people conf- like to entertain each other in conversations. Mm-hmm. So if, if I told you dramatically that something you believe was wrong, you might find that entertaining. But typically, you know, you heard some story somewhere, and it may or may not be true, but uh, I'm not fascinated by the story that it was wrong. It just kind of... Uh, it, it all depends on the exact nature of the story. It can easily be that I don't, you know, I didn't really care to hear this correction. I had a nice story that I was telling everyone, and you're <laughs> telling me now that it was wrong. Okay, maybe. So a little cognitive dissonance kicks in, but the entertainment yeah. value is. So in the book, you tell the story about uh, a British pop singer named Lily Allen, uh, right. supposedly did a gig in '09 and turned down the opportunity to be paid in Bitcoin. Right. And if she would have taken that and then held on to the Bitcoin, she'd be a billionaire. So first, compelling story. Yeah. Second, was it true? <laughs> yeah, this uh, uh, may or may not be true. Who cares, right? It's just a nice story. I never verified whether it was true. <laughs> right. I mentioned it in the book. But it, it relates to a, a basic human emotion called FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a driving force. So you, you also want to uh, take investing tips quickly before you, you, you know, have ruminated on them for a month. So you have to act quickly. So you, uh, fear of missing out is an important uh, instinct. That, uh, and maybe it goes back to our caveman days when you had to rush to grab the food before some other caveman got it. It was a matter of survival, not just making a profit <laughs> right. in the market. Quite, quite fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about markets. And if we're talking about markets, we have to talk about bubbles. If I had to guess the viral nature of bubbles and the stories surrounding them, had to be a key driver in your desire to write this book. Bubbles are uh, perhaps what you're best known for. Um, Your work in bubbles and behavioral economics very much stood in contrast to the traditional economic thinking that markets are efficient and people are rational. Right. Um, how much did Bubbles have to do with the ideas behind this book? I think that Bubbles was a kind of, the story that markets are efficient is a half-truth that uh, has been mentioned going back uh, 150 years, but it never really became dominant until Eugene Fama wrote uh, his famous article in the late 19. 19- when was it exactly? 1960s, I think. And you and Fama both shared the 2013 Nobel Prize. Yeah, that was ironic. Uh, it was an interesting experience during Nobel Week when I had to spend a week with Eugene Fama, who who was still on the view that I was totally wrong. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But it was kind of it was kind of nice because it turns out that we didn't really disagree much on much that was factual. Mm-hmm. We we agreed on the facts. It's like it's a different narrative. 
So I like to describe <laughs> people as swayed by uh, narratives. And he thinks of it as, um, what is it? It's changing tastes, maybe, or changing risk aversion, mm. uh, that people are different. The, he's trying to incorporate these things into a theory. He has a, a company called Dimensional Fund Advisors. He, he works for DFA, yes. Well, he's he was a, uh, the inspiration, I think, mm-hmm. for the founder. David of Booth the, is the founder of that, yes. Right. He's been with them for, what, 40 years, something like that? So I, I, I was uh, congratulating him during Nobel Week for showing decisively how he can beat the market through DFA. And he didn't like that. That's not the way he wants to put it. So I stopped doing it. I, was, I think it was becoming unwelcome, <laughs> even though okay. I was congratulating him. He doesn't think that he's telling people how to beat the market. He's helping people to manage their risks. What I find fascinating that you and Fama won the Nobel the same year is that there's, if you draw the Venn diagrams of your separate narratives, there's a big overlap in the middle. The overlap yeah. is essentially markets are kind of sort of efficient and it's very hard to beat right, them. Right. He, he will admit that it's very hard to beat that. Your narrative also adds, and people are irrational, and sometimes that leads to markets going wildly uh, out of off kilter before they return back to normalcy. I don't think Fama is a big believer that bubbles can be uh, either identified or even defined. It's just markets reaching extremes. That's one thing he said during Nobel Week, that I I challenge you to say when it was that someone could identify a major turning point in the mm. market. But I, I agree with that. It's hard, to, it's hard to pin down when the turning point is going to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, maybe, maybe we're not that... Uh, maybe not that not far that, apart. By the way, I admire the man. He's brilliant. He, he's done some tremendous work. Uh, let's talk about one other uh, narrative that has gone viral. What, what do you make of... Negative interest rates, uh, mm-hmm. es- essentially exported here, first from Japan and yeah. now Europe. Uh, how do these happen? Are we going to see these in the United States? I recall uh, you had said a long time ago, well, negative rates can never happen. It violates uh, the basic laws of economics. Uh, yeah, I used to teach that. <laughs> uh, and now we're at a minus a half percent in, in the e- EU. So that's... But it never, it can't get down to minus 5%. It can't because you would hold cash instead. Right. And uh, it just reflects the difficulties of actually storing cash. Uh, and uh, Especially lo- when lo- there's so many of, trillions of dollars of it sloshing around the system. Right. So it's an interesting observation. that. Now, I wonder, uh, do you know this? Were there negative interest rates? Uh, 50 or 100 years ago? There probably were at some point. I don't recall ever reading about negative interest rates before the 1989 Japan situation, um, but I have to imagine that at one point in time... They in must history, have been, right? Right, you would just, think. It's just not part of our narrative in the econ department. Right. So it must be that somebody in the 19th century had a million dollars in cash and he wanted to store it somewhere... And uh, someone said, well, I'm going to charge you. I don't, you know. If you think about the gold standard, that's effectively the equivalent of negative interest rates because you have to pay for storage and security for gold bars. How is that any different than negative interest rates for bonds if they're effectively the same credit risk? So we used to talk to our students about the zero lower bound Uh just because it's kind of cool. Just like the gold standard was kind of. So I talk about the gold standard in my book. 
they, uh, the public didn't really talk about the gold standard. They were just on it. Uh, right. Uh, it was a given. But then it became a moral value in the 1890s, particularly, when there was talk of bimetallism. Bimetallism so, meaning? Oh, that, uh, yeah, I, I, I compare it with Bitcoin. Right. I, I think the emotional content of the narrative was very similar to Bitcoin. It was a new financial innovation. Right. started to be talked about around the 1870s. Let's go off the gold standard. Let's have two standards, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to stimulate the economy. That was a time when they were partly right, because it would expand the money supply. Sure. And that would cause inflation. And that would wipe out the real value of debts. It would help farmers who were oppressed by deflation. So it has some element of truth. But the point is, it sounds like Bitcoin. It was a, a shocker that someone would adv- would go off the gold standard. We, we've, everything has been predicated on gold as the real thing. And you want to put some cheaper metal. You're debasing the currency. That's a crime. And it got very emotional. And it got emotional in ways that were regional, that East Coast intellectuals tended to be in favor of keeping the gold standard. And people out West who maybe had less college, most of them didn't have college at all, they were um, thinking they were pretty smart to have discovered this new bimetallism. Was it uh, William Jennings Bryant who right. said, uh, we, we don't need to be hung on a cross of, of gold? I know yeah. I'm mangling that somewhat. Yeah, that's in my book too. Yep. Turns out uh, he did. During the 1896 Democratic Convention, William Jennings Bryan said, you shall not crucify us on a cross of gold. But it turns out, and that's a, that, it's so famous a quote that people still remember it today. Uh, it, it, the crowd went wild there. They, they, they thought it was the second coming of Christ or something like <laughs> that. Uh, it turns out that William Jennings Bryan was quoting somebody else. And he didn't say so. The, the other guy who said it was a congressman who just said it in some speech, didn't get noticed. It was, it was that moment. He was giving his acceptance of the Democratic nomination for the presidency at the convention. And there were newspaper reporters there. Uh, and the crowd went wild. Uh, and it just became a, a narrative that never got forgotten. Although we've forgotten bit, uh, we've forgotten bimetallism pretty much. We still remember that quote. We don't know what it means anymore. <laughs> Quite interesting. We were talking earlier about Bitcoin, and of all the stories that that have narratives around it, the Bitcoin narrative seems to be quite fascinating. I, I think of it as millennial libertarian gold. Right. It's it's a younger generation with certain political beliefs love the idea of this independent currency free of government restraints, although that really hasn't seemed to be the way it, it's worked out, has it? It was a great story, yeah. <laughs> the government is capable of taxing you. We now know that on your Bitcoin profits. So they, they can get at your Bitcoin. <laughs> they can. As have hackers. You know, there, there are all sorts of new telephone hacks and they're using yeah. it to go after people's Bitcoin wallets. On, on top of that, a lot of the trades on the Bitcoin exchanges are, are fake trades. Oh, really? Just to, uh, in fact, most of the, on some of them, yeah. They, they, Mo- are you going to say they, most of the Bitcoin trades on certain exchanges are, are fake or not real they trades? Wanna, well, I, I've read this, so I'm sorry. Now, I, I don't want to accuse someone of a crime, but they're not regulated. Uh, and they're doing. Uh, the story is this is a narrative which I'm 
repeating is that the, they do wash trades. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, they want to show a lot of volume. Right, which makes it more credible as a currency. Yeah, that's how you. There has been in the history a lot of stock manipulation too, and we have to thank the SEC for uh, for clamping down on that because that that would happen. So, so some of the things we've talked about have been conspiracy theories to some degree. Why, in the modern era, with our access to all this? science and technology and and fact-finding and truth sites, why have have these conspiracy theories become so prevalent? Is this something fundamental about human beings and the way our minds operate? I mean, not just the moon landing hoax, but anti-vaxxers. There's yeah. even a rise of flat earthers. What What is that about? Well, there is a, uh, first of all, there are conspiracies in history. We know that there are conspiracies. Mm -hmm. So a rational person has to be alert to possible conspiracies. But we also know that there is a a personality type that, uh, uh, or maybe it's, yeah, a personality type that is uh, very uh, influenced by conspiracy stories. Mm -hmm. They used to... uh, in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, they used to talk about paranoid schizophrenic people. Uh-huh. They, they, they have hallucinations about conspiracies. But in the latest edition, they've separated it from schizophrenia, and they now have something called paranoid personality disorder. So these are the extremes. Right. And they're, they're not schizophrenic. There's just something odd about them. They're constantly imagining conspiracies. So there are a certain fragment of our population and people who are, who are not uh, suffering from any disorder but who are very f- uh, inordinately focused on, on uh, conspiracies are even more numerous. So if you find someone who believes one conspiracy, talk to him further and there will probably be many more conspiracies that this person, if it, it, it goes a little bit, it can get a little bit crazy. So the Federal Reserve has been a subject of all manner of conspiracy theories. Um, Going back to the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, what is it about central bankers that lend themselves to these theories? Is that just a good narrative tale of a bunch of bankers secretly manipulating the economy from, you know, behind the curtain? What what makes this such a compelling? And there's a whole group of people whose narratives are, they just hate the Fed. We should end the Fed, get rid of the Fed. What is it about central bankers that lends itself so easily to to these theories? Well, I think it's uh, it sounds okay. I, I, I'm trying to focus like a literary uh, expert who explains why some story is popular. Uh, it's partly because we're impressed by uh, monetary authority, just like we're impressed by Bitcoin or by metalism. Mm-hmm. So it's a story about something mysterious. We have these pieces of paper in our pa- pocket. And why are they valuable? They're just pieces of paper. It's kind of a mystery. It has to do with power and uh, feeling small. It, it makes you feel bigger and more important if you discover a, a uh, conspiracy. Resentment of uh, people who uh, maybe look more successful than you. Uh, and it's, 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 yeah, it's a bit of a mystery story, too, that uh, you, you've uncovered something that nobody knows mm-hmm. or that most people uh, naively assume isn't happening. So you can tell it's, it's a good narrative. 
So, um, so since we're talking about central bankers, um, in the book you reference Stefan Ingves, governor of Sweden's Riksbank, um, who said, quote, I'm a weatherman, I'm a showman, and I'm an economist, but above all, I'm a storyteller. I tell stories about the future. Uh, yeah. How true is that for, for central bankers? Yeah, I think uh, he's right. It, it, uh, the question to me is, what's more important, the actions they take or the words they say after the uh, FOMC meeting? Is it the meeting or is it the press conference afterwards? Yeah, um, or, it, or the nature of their statement. So I, I like to think that when the Fed cut the um, lower bound to the federal funds rate to zero— uh-huh. In right after this, uh, the um, Great Recession, that uh, the, the, that story brought up another narrative that is dangerous, and that is the narrative of Japan in the uh, 1990s when they cut their interest rate to zero, the Bank of Japan, and they were uh, and they had it, it stuck at zero or negative. It still is. That's like 30 years later. And uh, they had a lost decade. Then it turned out to be lost decades. The story was that Japan looked like the greatest, strongest economy in the world in the 1980s. They wrote lots of books about that. And then something went wrong. uh, And then they couldn't get out of it. So I think it was a mistake to put ourselves into the camp of zero interest rate countries. They could have kept it at 25 basis points and not use the Z word, as I call it. Right. The, the zero bound Be, word. Because it, then it makes the Japanese narrative our narrative. Right. If you look at the Nikkei bubble in the 80s, uh, I believe I've seen some, some analyses that say they were four times as expensive as the dot-com stocks. It was a giant right, bubble. Right, right. Really, so that collapse is still unwinding. Yeah, the CAPE ratio was getting up 60 or 70 uh, uh, it was really high. And what were we in the 30s uh, at, during uh, the dot-com collapse? Uh, well, we like? got up to the, the maximum at the dot-com peak was 46 right. in the United States. So this is almost double that in Japan. Yeah, it was a lot higher. Wow, that, that's amazing. Let, let's talk about another narrative that I found fascinating from the, from the book. The shift from conspicuous consumption to... Uh, the modern frugality and early retirement. H- how does something like that change over, what was it, 20 years from the conspicuous consumption era to spend as little money as possible and, and the FIRE group, the, uh, yeah. the invest and retire early group? Yeah, that might be happening. Uh, uh, that is not, we still have a very strong consumption demand at this point in history. That might be something that would turn around with the next recession, uh-huh. if and when it comes. But the big time when it did turn around, and it's legendary, is the in 1929. So in the in the roaring 20s, people were, you know, that was the Great Gatsby time. People loved conspicuous consumption, uh, and then something changed quite quickly after 1920 after the stock market crash of October 28th, 1929. Uh, and I, I, I found that narratives, well, first of all, uh, Christina Romer, uh, economic historian and CEA chairman at one point, uh, showed that consumption demand dropped immediately after the 29 crash. Like, why did people stop spending right at that moment? 
it, it, one way of learning about it is to go to the Sunday following the crash and listen to sermons. Uh-huh. And they used to report sermons in newspapers. Famous preachers would get into the newspaper for their sermon. It doesn't, it doesn't happen anymore. So I could read a little bit about what this, and the sermons were very moralizing. But we're, we, we've been in this age of excess, and now the stock market is crashing, and it serves them right, these uh, pretentious, rich, show-off people. So, so there was something already brewing. There was some dissatisfaction with the 20s that was developing, and it led to a different attitude in the 30s. Uh, uh, Winifred Holtby was a columnist back then, and she said one of her, uh, one of her columns, Dare to be poor. There's so much more to, I'm, I can't quote her exactly, but there's so much more to life than just keeping up appearances and showing off. Uh, so that attitude came back. Uh, and I think that was part of the Great Depression. It also means the Great Depression wasn't as altogether bad as you might think because it relieved you of the, uh, of the obligation to show off. You could blame it on the recession and people would be perfectly under, on the depression. People would be perfectly understanding. They knew that some tragedy had fallen. Uh, unfortunately, this was also a self-fulfilling prophecy. It kept us in the depression, but it uh, may have made life more livable. So that raises an interesting question. Can, can we talk ourselves into a recession? If the economy is other fu- otherwise fine and people are starting to get nervous about maybe it's a manufacturing contraction, maybe it's part of the trade war or tariffs, can, can we convince ourselves that a recession is coming and that affects our behavior that makes a recession come? Absolutely. That, that's what I think is at risk right now. If you go to Google Trends, you will, uh, to look, that allows you to find out what people are searching for through time. There was a huge surge in searches for the term recession in 2007, just before the recession began. And we see another such surge right now. So Google Trends has been used to predict influenza epidemics. It can also be a way of predicting economic narrative epidemics. So somehow we are really talking about recession, and we're not in a recession. So we'll see what happens. It may well trigger a recession. Let's talk about something that's been around for a long time, and it's how technology is going to take all our jobs away. Uh, First it was automation, then it was artificial intelligence. Now it's robots are coming for our jobs. Why why is this such a persistent theme throughout hundreds of years? It goes back thousands of years, actually, but not as strong. It started with the Luddites in uh, 1811, and then the swing riots in the 1820s, where uh, common labor was being replaced by uh, we, you know, fa- fabric f- machines in factories or, or, or uh, agricultural devices that simplified harvesting. Uh, but it's it's it, so th- this narrative has been around for about 200 years. Mm-hmm. But it, it flares up at certain times. It's like a disease. It mutates, and the narrative mutates, and it flares up. And it can cause uh, problems. Uh, it did that in the 1870s, uh, and, uh, or in the 1890s, or in the, in 19, especially in the Great Depression of the 1930s. They were talking about robots in the 1930s. Wow. 
and they were worried that this is it. This is a major. This will go down in here. The year 1929 will go down in history as a major turning point when people of common labor will be impoverished from now on. That was something a lot of people believed, and it discouraged them from spending because they thought, I better start saving for this future that's coming. But then we, that's not part of our story about the Great Depression. Right. Because that was something that didn't, it was something that, a false theory, it didn't happen. Um, and, and so we've just don't, no longer attached that to the explanations of that event. So what about the modern era where we're seeing automation replace a lot of jobs? We're seeing software and artificial intelligence. On Wall Street, half the trading desks have been replaced with software. There's, yeah. there's talk about accountants and lawyers seeing a lot of their their work being automated by software. There's even artificial intelligence writing news stories by just identifying specific facts and, and putting them together. Oh, they have sports. Uh, they can do a sports <coughs> <laughs> with a data feed. So, so <laughs> is there a reason to be concerned? Or let me rephrase that. Some of these stories, which sound silly and scary and retrospective, appear to have some degree of truth that technology does replace certain, at least repetitive, non-creative jobs. Well, I wouldn't say, uh, is translation a repetitive, non-creative? Probably. Well, if you're translating poetry, not. If you're translating something from French to English or from... Uh, you know, Google Translate, you could basically get a not great, but usable right. translation of, of just about any language to any language. So I think there is reason to worry. And it goes back to the notion that economists have that the uh, in a competitive equilibrium, perfect equilibrium, um, people's wages are their, equal to their marginal product. If, if you have to sell for what you can get, Right, and there's no uh, sympathy or morality that intervenes. Uh, then you're you're going to get your, what you can contribute at the margin, and the the problem with that is that technology changes that. It's not your fault, so there's no reason to think that it can't happen. It hasn't happened, um, but maybe maybe the uh, turning point is about to come, or has already started coming. Inequality is rising. Mm-hmm. It's partly because the problem is whether we can invent new roles for ourselves uh, that would value people uh, as opposed to robots. And I think we don't know, uh, but but nobody can speak authoritatively about the future. Uh, so so it becomes a, a place for narratives. So so let's talk about not the future but the past. How do narratives change over time? You, you mentioned the Great Depression. It sounds like the narratives around the Great Depression have morphed several times from the 20s to the 30s to the present day. Yeah, the, the, uh, if you do a count of the f- phrase Great Depression, it has been growing ever since uh, at maybe the end of World War II. They didn't call it the Great Depression in the Great Depression. What, what well, was it called then? Uh, they they would call it hard times, mm-hmm. uh, but it wasn't singling it out uh, with a special name. Um, when did that start? There was a book written in 1934 by Lionel Robbins at the London School of Economics called The Great Depression. 
So yeah, it, 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 it was a book. It, it was talked about. So you'll see references to the Great Depression from 1934 on. But it became kind of a story of our lives later. And it gradually grew. Uh, it was growing continually, pretty much continually, in terms of counts of that use of that. In, in the 1950s, John Kenneth Galbraith wrote a book called 1929, uh, The Crash. Uh, that was a bestseller and got a lot of attention. People began to worry. Oh, they've been worrying all that time about it possibly coming back. Uh, but it, it didn't because there wasn't... The, the, the narrative was growing, but it wasn't focused on something that's about to happen. And it came back in 2007 with vengeance when uh, George W. Bush gave a speech that uh, was later described uh, as very much like uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's The Only Thing We Have to Fear is Fear Itself speech. Uh, so uh, it, uh, George W. Bush translated that into anxiety can feed anxiety. Mm-hmm. But it was, he gave the same talk. So, and a lot of people remember that. So, you wouldn't think that one talk from 1933 would still be remembered. We're very selective in what we remember. That was such a catchy phrase, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned um, George Bush heading into the financial crisis. During 08-09, I was calling it the financial crisis, but it seems a few years later we started calling it the Great Recession. All right. That that name seems to have it was a credit crisis. It was the subprime yeah. debacle. It seemed to have changed over time. How common is that historical revisionism with these yeah. giant uh, viral events? By the way, the, the term Great Recession uh, was first applied to the 1974-75 recession. Really? in a book by Otto Eckstein. I think that was the title of his book, The Great Recession. Uh-huh. Um, and and that, that was a giant, by the way, for people to remember, stock market fell almost as the same amount as it fell in 08 and 09. It was about a 57% drop, at least yeah, the Dow yeah. Jones, almost kind of. And it had a serious recession. Sure. Uh, Oil embargo, that whole early, and, and yeah. big inflation. That was not a fun period. And then in uh, 1980 through 82, we had a twin recessions, the double dip. Yeah, this was the second oil crisis now. Mm-hmm. And um, there were people around at that time who called it the, the Great Recession. But none of those stuck, and I'm not sure why. Um, uh, and uh, you can't control these, ep- these narrative epidemics. So I have to admit, I now sometimes refer to the 2008-9 recession as the Great Recession because everybody knows what I mean when I say that. Right. You, you lose the battle. You, I'm saying, no, it's the 1974-75 recession. <laughs> also, even the word recession wasn't used until 1938. Oh, really? What was the more common phrase? Depression. Really? So I know we had a number of market crashes and economic events throughout the 19th century before there was a Federal Reserve. Those were not called recessions. They were called depressions. No, uh, well, there might have been some creative use of the word, mm-hmm. but it wasn't the name for them. So, yeah, uh, they would talk about um, business depression. They didn't say depression either. They say business depression. Uh-huh. But it wasn't clear that that was a name for a phenomenon as just, yeah, like business downturn, I could right. say. Economic contraction, is that a more modern usage? I have to check that one. Right. It, it sounds, that sounds like it came in with uh, Burns and Mitchell in a 1946 book. I, I'm not sure, but 
the language does change. But the language changes mean something because different words have different connotations uh-huh. and associations in our mind. Huh, quite fascinating. Before we get into some questions we didn't get to, I remember you and I doing a television hit together. It had to be like 05 or 06, talking huh. about the house flippers and how prices had run away and people looked at us like we were crazy was this cnbc i think it was yeah it was Uh, it was griffith's his name uh bill griffith bill griffith i I mean uh, my memory isn't as good i I think i think i remember that event and and i just recall that anytime you anybody brought up the possibility that hey you know these things don't grow to the sky forever rates are crazy low they can't stay that way forever in the midst of the boom, if you bring up the narrative that this is going to end and end badly, people look at you like you're, you know, like you have uh, the plague. It it was a, an astonishing period. Right. Yeah, I, I remember that. It was emotionally difficult experience to make. Uh, and uh, although you've never been afraid of taking a unpopular contrarian position, yeah. most of which turned out to be correct over time. Yeah, it, with some anxiety, though, because I'm basing it on things that are not leading indicators identified by statisticians. Right. And uh, I have a sense that some of these leading indicators became leading indicators because of a self-fulfilling... Once people believe they're a leading indicator, they 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 make it happen. So there's a little chicken and egg problem with that because they don't become resonant until they have a track record so some of it just becomes a little luck as to what happened yeah, to have worked right. once before how how important is luck to not just one thing going viral but something becoming a regular resource that people use for decades uh, i don't know how to answer that i say it reminds me of a book by nasim taleb mm-hmm. uh, called fooled by randomness sure. and it takes the form of a novel it's a great fun uh, about a man named Nero Tulip, which is the <laughs> author's, this a distortion of the author's. So it's autobiographical. But you go through life feeling ashamed and elated when random events made you a success or a failure, right. and you just can't believe that it's just random. Well, we have a tendency to want to take credit for things that work out, and want to blame outside factors we for try things to do that, that don't. Yeah, but you might actually blame yourself. People do blame them. They won't do it publicly, but internally they get depressed. Uh-huh. And that's that's because they uh, – a little imposter syndrome or, or, or some yeah, of that? Yeah, yeah. So a couple of questions we didn't get to that, that I have to ask you about. Um, so you've written a ton about market bubbles and investor behavior. Um but behavioral economics is more diagnostic than prescriptive. It, it, it tells what could be done rather than advise people what to do. Uh, and that kind of reminds me a little bit of the bias blind spot, how people um, have an inability to see their own biases. So so what can investors do uh, if we know we're all biased, but we personally don't see our own biases? Well, um I don't have a good answer. I, I can tell you what books to read. How about Danny, <laughs> Danny Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow? Sure. That, that's been a bestseller. Uh, and it t- tells you about lots of biases that you probably have and you didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two stories I, had a, I have to ask um, from the book. 
One is about blue jeans, just mm-hmm. dungarees. How, how has oh, that? You're wearing them. I, I'm wearing. I'm wearing stretch blue jeans, <laughs> which kind of made me think of how blue jeans have changed over time. It started yeah. out that this was for farmers and ranchers. Well, even yeah, that's right. They were work clothes. Uh, and in the 1870s, I think there was a governor of Indiana called Blue Jeans Bill, uh-huh. who would wear blue jeans to formal occasions, <laughs> and the people thought he was crazy. But it made him famous, right? And he was just didn't want to be pretentious. Man, was it was it real? Was he a man of the yeah, people? Yeah, he or was, was a real just an governor, act? and he, uh, yeah. man, yeah, man of the people who wanted to show that he was. And it's had that sense to it ever since. Uh-huh. It it's. Uh, I'm I'm real. I'm not fake. Right. Uh, it it developed in the 1920s further with the dude ranches. That was another uh, new. Uh, that's where you would go to a ranch, and you'd ride horses and lasso and pretend to be a cowboy. Pretend for a week? you were a city person, but right. you could do it for a week. And you'd buy a pair of uh, blue jeans then, and then it kind of showed that you were into the in things. You were doing dude ranchy things, and then in the 1930s it became fashion. And that's when they started ripping their blue jeans and making them look worn, right? Uh, to to heighten the effect, uh, and then it got more uh, impetus uh, from uh, the um, uh, Rebel Without a Cause, James Dean movie, right. where he fashionably wore blue jeans for the whole movie, and it had that was a powerful narrative. That that movie was admired by and he people. he died in a crash driving a Porsche oh, that, like yeah. a month before the movie came out kind of right. that kind of made the movie go viral didn't it yeah it depends on things like that becoming assassinated helps your narrative <laughs> or murdered or 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 die in a accident that reveals your reckless side which is what James Dean did he was speeding right and that was part of the character in in the film yeah, so it uh, it was uh, it was a good movie, right? It, it resonated. Um, so so the other thing I had to ask you about was uh, on expectations. Um, Pedro Domingos is a machine-driven linguistic linguistic processing expert at Hedge Fund De Shaw, and and his quote: "Emerging narratives determine expectations, and expectations determine everything else." How right. important are expectations to, to narratives? Right. Well, I think uh, this is older tradition in economics where people would ask people, what, what do you expect the inflation rate to be this year? Uh, George Katona, who was a, uh, the founder of the Michigan Consumer Sentiment, well, one of the founders of the mm-hmm. Michigan Consumer, said that he interviewed people and talked to them directly. and He would ask them, what do you think the inflation rate will be this year? And he got the impression, he said, that People don't really, uh, they, they look lost. What? What is the inflation rate? Uh, I don't have any clear idea. And then if he pressed them, they'd come up with a number. Right. So he said they don't exactly have expectations. But maybe, at least a lot of people don't. Um, but maybe it's, uh, it's more like uh, stories about, uh, they, they, they heard that the price of something went up 10% over the last year, and it's been doing that. Uh, and so they're upset, and they're angry. Uh, and uh, they can talk like that. If you force them to do it, then they'll just say, okay, my expectation is 10%. <laughs> but they didn't have it. Someone uh, once said that 
the reason oil and gasoline prices are so important to people's expectations, inflation expectations, is it's the only product you buy that the price is displayed in 20-foot-tall numbers on 40-foot-tall oh, signs. Yeah, yeah. And so you everybody sees it. You can't help but notice it. How important is that to stories of prices rising or falling? Yeah, so visual images matter for stories. Also, sense of identity matters. So the inflation problem became the most serious problem facing the country, according to Gallup polls, in sometime in the 70s, 80s, maybe say 70s. Uh, and we had a very big bout of inflation during that era. Uh, right. So, uh, But I think that what I was going to say is that it not only uh, affected people's uh, lives directly, but it also made them angry. And they started blaming labor unions for the inflation, for bidding up, for forcing companies to wage price, raise prices in order to pay the higher wages they were paying the unionized members. And it led to a public reaction against unions. And it led to ultimately to uh, Ronald Reagan and um, uh, a, a general diffusing of the power of unions. Now, by the time the 70s and 80s came around, hadn't union strength been falling for, for some time? Well, I don't, yeah, when I, when I name Ronald Reagan, I don't mean that he invented the narrative. He <laughs> was, uh, he, good politicians know that they can't r routinely invent narrative. You can, you can add some uh, similar narratives that strengthen it, but uh, you have to accept that people are onto a certain story and to be a successful politician, you want to, uh, you want to uh, repeat the story. So he fired the air traffic controllers uh, when they went on strike, which I believe right. was the first time something like that had happened. That played right into the we're not going to take it from unions anymore narrative. Right. So he knew how to create a new narrative built around an emerging narrative. So it would become part of a constellation of anti-union narratives. And and that had an impact on prices or just public perception of, of well, unions? Well, it did. That was a major turning point, not just for the U.S., but around much of the world, that the inflation rate was up in the double-digit range uh, per year. Uh, and that, it started to come down right from that date. Huh. So uh, th these are big changes in economics uh, events that are narrative-driven. So economists tend often to be focused on predicting month-to-month -month fluctuations uh, and not why did there why was there a global peak in inflation around 1980 and that I think has to be understood through uh, changing narratives now I would credit Paul Volcker and his actions as Fed chief raising rates yeah. uh, double digits in order to break the back of inflation but you're suggesting the narrative favors what Ronald Reagan did well, I think they both were important factors. It's a complicated story. Sure. But uh, Volcker might not have had the political capital to to do that if uh, if the public wasn't already angry about inflation. So uh, it was a it was a um, courageous thing for him to to create the Great Recession, as it was called at the right. time, uh, in in the 1980s. Uh, but he he was judging, I think, that he did have these, uh, that people were angry about this. There had been all this talk about controlling inflation, 
uh, and it just gets worse and worse. And they also believe, this was part of the popular narrative then, that it eats into my wallet. They didn't, they didn't think, as many economists did, that it would, it would get into their paycheck as well, even though they weren't unionized by, uh, uh, by market forces. Huh. Quite, quite interesting. So now let me get to my favorite questions that we ask uh, all of our guests. This is sort of our speed round. Feel free to go as, as short uh, as you want. Tell us the first car you ever owned, year, make, and model. <laughs> My parents gave me a Rambler Ambassador mm-hmm. in the 1960s because it was a safe car. And I don't follow my parents too much in detail, but I've been buying safe cars ever since. I, I recall taking a cab with you once, and in the back seat, you put on the seatbelt. I don't know a lot of people do that um, oh, from yeah. a safety perspective. Not yeah. the Rambler, by the way, not the Porsche Speedster that James Dean drove. <laughs> That's right. I'm not a James Dean type. Um, what's the most important thing people do not know about Bob Schiller? So uh, I don't know what's important about me. Uh, is it something about my personality? Well, or? what what do people not know about you? Uh, well, I okay, I'm thinking, uh, I, this is just off the wall thought, mm-hmm. but uh, I think people differ in their um, uh, their ability to focus attention and their ability to uh, complete projects. I think I did. I was a project oriented person uh-huh. from childhood, uh, but distractible. Right. My secretary will tell you that I'm distractible, but I keep coming back. So I think that people like me should do things like write books. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what your sixth book, your eighth. Well, it depends book? on how you. It it could be thirteenth, but I say tenth book. Tenth book. Wow. Um, who were your early mentors? Who affected your career, be it in academia or economics? Okay. Um, in elementary school, I don't know his first name. Mister Keener uh-huh. was my science teacher, and he encouraged me. I wanted to be a scientist. Really. I, I am a social scientist. I right. did it. And also, my high school geometry teacher, Mr. Susi, I think it was Roger Susi. I now know his first name, who uh, uh, encouraged me about mathematics. And I wrote an uh, extra paper for his course, which he didn't even ask for, in which I used the differential calculus to uh, derive a formula for the length of a spiral. And he was so encouraging. You're doing original mathematics. I assume somebody else has already done that, but I, I don't know where. I assume I got it right. I don't know. So um, tell us about some of your favorite books. You've mentioned numerous books so far. What, what books do you really enjoy? What do you read for pleasure or fun? See, one thing is that I am distractible, so I often don't finish them. Right. Uh, I jump around and look for interesting places. Are you reading like three or four books at once? Uh, what I'm doing right now, I, uh, it's strange. I, I bought at an antiquarian bookstore a bound volume of, for 1849 uh-huh. of Little's Living Age. Ever heard of it? No. It was an intellectual magazine like The Atlantic or Harper's uh, from that time. And I thought, I'll just do, you know, every night I'll read one issue of it. 
Uh, and it just brought me, brings me into the year 1849. I'm letting them decide what I read. Do you, do you? I make discoveries about the past. For example, I discovered that women's liberation was already, I just read a story about famous women poets in that, in that volume. In 1840s? 1849, yeah. Uh And they didn't mention Emily Dickinson. So then I looked it up. She was only 19 years old in 1849. What what other books have you what what do you like to recommend to people what uh, or what book just resonated with you? See, I don't know if I recommend uh, books very often, but I like uh, uh, autobiographies or diaries. Uh-huh. So the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin uh, influenced me. Mm-hmm. Uh, his autobiography, not somebody else's biography. He wrote of his him. own life, right? Uh, and uh, the uh, the diary of um, uh, oh, the name. The person who wrote the light of of Samuel Johnson, James Boswell. Okay. Uh, uh, and uh, oh, I just like real things. I like to hear people from the past talk to me. Uh, that's what Little Living Age is doing for me. Uh, and Having what, people uh, from the past. I want to go you. back there and hear them. So James Boswell, his own autobiography. Yeah. In fact, it was written on a daily. It's really a diary. Uh huh. What he did today. And uh, he did a lot of uh, things that were not entirely moral. <laughs> he didn't plan to publish it, apparently, from the standards of his age. Um, but he was an, overall a nice person. Um, what do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not researching and writing your own books? Uh, I read things. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I sit with my wife. Now I'm watching television more, but it's whatever she chooses. <laughs> What sort of stuff Why are you watching it? on TV? Oh, things like John Oliver and uh-huh. uh, uh, oh, the PBS NewsHour. These are her choices, but I like them too. So that that's interesting. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, I I had a firm uh, called Macro Markets uh-huh. that failed, but it, it didn't completely fail. It it went uh, under. It uh, collapsed. It's no longer in exist, but it did leave a legacy. Mm-hmm. Which uh, was what? Well, we we wanted to create uh, markets for real estate. For oh, sure, I recall homes. this. And there still is, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange still has a market that we helped them create uh, based on the S&P Case-Shiller right. home price, now CoreLogic uh, home price indices. So I think uh, what we did changed the world. And even if it didn't make us rich. See, part of the inspiration, part of the pleasure, I'm living out my father's dream who wanted me to be an entrepreneur. Uh-huh. There's something uh, about creativity that is rewarding, even if the business doesn't succeed. Mm-hmm. Well, you created the CAPE ratio, and I know there are a number yeah. of mutual funds based on that. Yeah, there are, yeah. That, that's fairly entrepreneurial, right? Uh, yeah, I... I, I I have the uh, American, or it's not just American, the entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. uh, that I, I, I got from my father. Huh. Um, what are you most optimistic and or pessimistic about today? Uh, I don't like to be too pessimistic. <laughs> I don't like to do that. Uh, but I am worried about things like global warming and uh, possible... Uh, possible uh, crisis in the planet. Uh, 
you know, we don't like to think about these things. I think we should be more concerned about making agreements with other countries about how we're going to handle uh, in- environmental crises mm-hmm. like global warming. We might not be able to see them now and identify them, but we should have some risk-sharing agreements. What are we going to do if global warming gets so bad, for example, that some country is unlivable? Where do they go? You know, Who wants to take them in? That's a problem. That sounds like quite the problem. Um, so if one of your uh, students came to you or a millennial came to you and was looking for career advice about working in the field of either behavioral economics or, or finance, what sort of advice would you give them? Well, this would be very general. I think that uh, 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 finance is an important field. I teach. I have an online course that's free, by the way, on Coursera mm-hmm. called Financial Markets. Uh, and I'm very proud of that because I have educated so many people, not just from Yale, but from all over the world who went into finance. So I, I think finance is a good field because it solves problems. Uh, and it's not the government solving problems, uh, although it can also be. There's government finance as well. Uh, and behavioral finance is just finance coming into reality. Uh, I, I think... Uh, uh, it's not as uh, behavioral finance is not a job category like finance is, uh, but I think in order to be well-rounded, one should know something about it. I tell my students uh, to, in my course, financial markets. Even if you don't want to go into finance, you should take this course because finance is about making things happen realistically. How do you finance activities that are useful for society? Huh, quite interesting. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of economics and narratives today that you wish you knew 40 years ago? <laughs> uh, I, I think I'm stalling on this one. I wish I knew everything that had come up. In the, There's so many details. In, uh, one, one thing, I, I just visited the Behavioral Insights team in um, the UK uh-huh. last week. Uh, and very impressed with all the things. But it, not, now these are sprouting up everywhere. They're, they're, they're consulting groups, effectively, uh-huh. that, that help people uh, do their, their financing uh, more effectively in, in account of, uh, of uh, what we know. And there's so much knowledge. A lot of it is experimental. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have to try things out and see what, how people react. Because how people react is not... For not and mostly predictable based on just the first uh, theory. Quite interesting. Thank you, Bob, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Professor Robert Schiller of Yale University. His new book, Narrative Economics, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events, was released on October 1st. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of our prior 250 or so conversations we've had over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Go to Apple iTunes. Give us a nice review. We really appreciate that. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps put this together. Each week, Atika Valbrun is our project director. Michael Boyle is our booker slash producer. Carolyn Ria is our audio engineer today, and Michael Batnick is my head of research. 
I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.